Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. I'm Lisa Fine, and I host this show with Mary Shirley. As you may know, we started out in December 2018, and one of the many great things about still being here in 2022 is that Mary and I get to make some traditions. Some are fun, like the Gwikis, some are personal challenges, like when I force myself to do a solo episode once a year. And the other one that is really important and meaningful to me is that I have my last interview of the year with somebody who's not only been a leader in a field, but also a personal inspiration to me and just an all-around great person. So this year, that's Jackie Chesla. She's one of those people. From the time I first met her, she has provided great information and wisdom. and She always does it in a practical, concise, and blunt way. Thank you so much, Jackie, for being here. Thank you for being back. And thank you for being a repeat episode. Oh, Lisa, thank you so much. And I'm so glad to be back with you. If you remember, I was with you and Mary way back in 2018 when this was just a germ of an idea. So the fact that four years later, you were both so successful at this is just amazing. And there's no place else I'd rather be than spending time with good friends. I feel the same. And what was your episode number, your first one? Because you're the one I was going to say that. So episode 21 and one of the best people with us in the community. So with that, one thing to keep you keep everyone up on since episode 21 is that at that time you were still at Avis Budget and you were in the corporate world. Now you are the global compliance program leader at I, which is the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. It's a little bit and of a mouthful. And it's a real mouthful. So IEEE covers it. Right. So we're going with IEEE. So can you talk about your background and a bit about more about IE and what you do there? I certainly will. And thank you, Lisa. So I is a was a real leap of faith for me. So before we get there, talk a little bit about my background. I actually, like many of us, fell into this by accident. I was in-house working for a litigation attorney and doing a document production request. That's how many years ago. It was actually boxes of paper. And when I went looking for the file room and I found it, it was a mess. And of course, now my hair is on fire. I know I've got to put up these documents and I run downstairs and he says to me, so what are you telling me for? Just go fix it. So I did, I built out their record management program and one thing led to another. Sarbanes-Oxley was enacted and they said, we need somebody to make sure we're compliant, give it to Jackie. So I have navigated my way through generic pharmaceuticals in a, both private and a publicly held companies into Avis, as you mentioned, Avis Budget Car Rental, which was a Fortune 4 publicly traded company, and somehow found my way to ID, which is a nonprofit public charity, which is membership-led and driven. So what that means in my day-to-day is our board of directors is comprised of the people who make operational decisions are volunteers, the people who actually create what we produce are volunteers. And we've got a rather broad scope of business. We have conferences and continuing education. We produce standards. We help develop standards. And a matter of fact, I was instrumental in developing the standard for the among many other things. And then we have a very large publishing arm. 
So the volunteers actually write that content, edit that content, peer review that content. So as staff, we support the volunteers' efforts. And I believe it was a very appealing organization in that their mission is the development of technology for to better humankind, to make the world a better place. And I thought, what better place for a compliance officer to be than an organization that simply wants to do the right thing? And that's this is going to be easy peasy. Oh, when you got there, was it easy peasy? That was, no. what, what, what did you have that was similar <laughs> and different from before? Has it been rainbows and unicorns every day? Yeah, (laughs) very much not rainbows and unicorns every day. I'll give just one example to tell you what it's been like. Going in, I was very upfront that I had very little export control and sanction experience. But I'm more than happy to learn it. And, you know, between myself and outside counsel, I was sure that I would be able to get there. I didn't expect on my first day to walk in and say, four o'clock, we've got a call with sanctions council. And I was like, oh my goodness. And and you and I talked about this when we spoke earlier, we all suffer from imposter syndrome. And that day more than any other in the world, I sat there thinking, what am I doing? Am I out of my mind? I was in a position for a dozen years. The program was humming along. I finally, I had a fairly good control on it. None of us ever has a hundred percent control on a compliance program. And here I walked in and no staff, no funding, and no idea what I was walking into. So the first couple of weeks were a little bit shaky. And the organization is very complicated, very diverse. And because of the volunteers, there's constant turnover. And I said to a couple of my colleagues when I came in, how long did it take you to really get a handle on operations and on the organization? They said, oh, don't worry. In five years, you'll be good. <laughs> and you're probably thinking in weeks, last months. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. So it was an interesting, it was an interesting, it was an interesting start. I will say it's almost three years to the day since I took the role. I am a sanctioned subject matter expert. I do know my export controls. I have a staff. It hasn't been easy getting here, but it sure has been a lot of fun. So I want to ask a little bit more about sanctions in a minute, but first I want to go back to some of the changes from the first day from coming, humming along, having a large staff to I'm here and I'm getting sanctions calls. Were there any things that you found similar that helped you, you the similarities that might've been surprising or differences from your prior roles? It was coming in, I forget how to say this. It wasn't that there wasn't a compliance program there, but there was no life in the program. And it was exactly what I had encountered in my previous roles where everybody had beautiful paper documents, and they all did training, and everybody knew compliance, and no, they didn't. So it it was coming in, and so there's a sense of excitement when you find that. And I've never had the experience of moving into a role where there was a really true, robust compliance program that had life to it. I've always gone in and been rebuilding or building or creating. So there was a lot of excitement around that. That was very, the other thing that was very similar was when first conversations with the management team and they were like, we're compliant, we don't have any problems. And so it's interesting that every company is the same. It doesn't matter what field you're in, what business you're in, when you First walk in the door, everybody thinks everything is wonderful. And so getting them to share with me where they thought their pain points was my first my first challenge. And I, you've heard me speak about how can I help? 
it's my goal when I go in is to, to put people at ease that compliance is not the police coming in and we're not investigators. We're not coming here to look to get you in trouble. We're coming in to help you. We want to help you succeed. We want to help you achieve your goals. So I went on what I called a listening tour, which is, and I'll tell you a bit about my listening tour because I started this job six weeks before COVID shut us all down. My first couple of meetings were in person, which were great. So I started from the top down and met with the C-suite, which in our parlance is the management council, and their direct reports. And some of them would give me their time and some of them gave me designees. And that was fun. And so we went through a bit of who I am and why I was there. And then I said to them, so tell me what worked for you previously with compliance? And so we had a little discussion in there. What would you like to see compliance be? Or what would you like it to do? And then about halfway through that, the office is shut down globally. Mm-hmm. So I then was conducting those listening interviews over a video, which was <laughs> a uh, lot and, and I cycled in and out of, I'm never going to be able to do this job. I've got it. I'm never going to be able to do this job for the first six months with everything that was happening at the same time. And I thought, how am I going to build relationships with people over the video when I'm not actually even in there with them? How do I get them to trust me, to talk to me, to tell me? And so I went back to some of the things I'd heard you and others say along the way about how you engage people and talk to them. So getting your Zoom, I think, changed all of and we're on Zoom at the moment. Like I'm looking at the piece of artwork behind you and trying to figure out how we'd bring that into the conversation. And I've got the stuff behind me as well. Right. And not long into COVID, I got a yeah. At the time, I had a couch behind me in my office, parked herself on the sofa. So everybody that got on the call with me would see her in the background and say, oh, you got a puppy. And so little things like that started to bridge that distance between us that we were together. Yeah. We helped form relationships. And to this day, I mean, we're back in the office now full time since March. I've been back for a year and a half, but it was mandatory to go back in March. And I'm still running its people will say to me, oh, finally, I get to see you. Because we haven't actually met. Yeah, that's interesting. At the Pearson, where I work, we have a lot of comfort with remote work. So that in some ways it was easier, but in some ways it was a little bit harder once you hit COVID. But I, like you said, you look at the other things and you have to make more of an effort to remember things about people or write them right. down because just remembering if somebody mentioned something about a birthday or an event and just asking them and keeping up is a different kind of thing when you're just not having true water cooler conversations. Mm-hmm. And I too can say that the I think it does, Natalie does, my, my dog shows up, won't be here today, he, but he, uh, when he would show up into calls, it does two things. One, people like seeing animals yeah. most of the time. And second of all, when they do something silly or something goes wrong or it, it distracts you, it makes you more human because oftentimes talking to ethics and compliance people, even if there's just for them to get to know you, people don't trust it. it so it's being able to connect, I think I agree with you on a human level is really important in a new role and can be much harder when you can't just sit over a meal and be that's it and for us it's all about relationships yes you know yep. and that, and i learn more online in the cafeteria getting lunch than i learn in a thousand meetings right focus groups are wonderful but coffee in the morning is even better people are more <laughs> comfortable more willing to talk to you so you know, overcoming the distance was probably one of the bigger priorities in the yeah. early days. Yeah, absolutely. 
So going from the building of relationships and the building of the things that I think with our soft skills we enjoy, and you mentioned this a little while ago, was that you started in information management records, went into compliance, and then when you showed up, you mentioned the first day with sanctions. And you're, can you talk about, and you now said you're the subject matter expert, how were you able to get yourself there, particularly in light of what happened a year later and everything with Ukraine and Russia and all of that, where you had to learn it ahead of time, and then it probably became your whole life even more. That's it. And what happened in Russia has no relationship to anything else that's ever gone on. I connected right away with outside counsel for IAAA, and they've been representing them in that area for 20 years, so they have a fairly good background. Mm -hmm. And in-depth training discussions with them as frequently as possible, but I knew that wasn't going to give me what I needed. They were giving me the ID perspective on sanctions. And I know that one of the benefits you that you bring to an organization when you join it is outside experience. Being virtual at the time and because of the shutdown gave me the ability and the leisure to be able to go out and um, attend virtual events, look for online training, read more than anything else. I connected with colleagues all over the world that I had met through either conferences or different activities we've done and just picked their brains. Literally said, what do you think? What do you? What do I need to look out for? Where are the mines? Where are the landmines? What is it that I'm not getting? And how does it apply? And for the most part, when you talk to people who do export controls, they're generally in a manufacturing industry, do a lot of import-export. I don't manufacture anything. And so my situation even to that extent is even more unique because what I have to think about is the fact that the information that we share every day, that we the volunteers share, that the staff shares, it may or may not be technology related. And if it is technology related, is it export controlled and trying to figure it out and learning about it wasn't it wasn't just knowing what OFAC was and reading a single sanctions program. We're in 160 countries. So there isn't a sanction program out there that doesn't apply to us in one way, shape, or form. Some of it was hands-on learning. Somebody asked me a question, I would have to, I, I didn't have to. I could have picked up the phone and called outside counsel and said, but I wanted to, had to learn it. I needed to learn it. I dug through old files, which were really sparse, didn't give me a lot of what I needed. Did the research myself, analyzed it myself. Now, mind you, I'm not an attorney. So a lot of that is stuff that might become naturally to an attorney, but I guess after being around all of you for 30 years, you started to rub off. Because I would do my own research, come up with my own analysis, and then just validate it with outside counsel. And so really what I did was you talk about jumping off the deep end and you don't know how to swim. I had to teach myself to swim. And that's what I did. I took, in the first year, I took better than 120 hours of online training, live and recorded. That's amazing. I That's unbelievable. Yeah. So, and and for me, it wasn't a hardship though. I mean, one of the things I've always loved about what we do is no two days are ever the same. And every day I learn something new. So here was an opportunity to explore this whole new universe. And what I did find once I got into is there are a lot of analogies between that and dealing with anti-bribery and corruption. So while the laws are very different, the risks come from the same place. A lot of the controls I needed to put in place, the screening, the due diligence, were all things I was very familiar with because I dealt with them in the other world. 
And so that's one way that you were able to apply what you've done in the past to this new world you were in, correct? Exactly. Exactly. And as a matter of fact, I'm using some of the same tools that mm -hmm. I was using in prior lives for that purpose in my sanctions program. Well, that's great. And is, what is your favorite thing about your role now? Is there something about it that's really your your excitement or what's just the thing that keeps you energized? There's a freedom to it. Be, because they were used to doing things. Well, let me back that up a little bit. Before I came on board, every bit of training we had was out-of-the-box, lawyer-created training. And you know yourself, we've taken those trainings. When I had to take my onboarding training, I thought my, my brain was going to bleed. It was so long and so boring. And when I suggested changing it, no one said to me, there's no money. No, that's what we've always done. They were like, go ahead, make it better. So I did. When I find some, and I, it's an overall support, I get that support from the volunteers and from the paid staff leadership as well. Right. If you can make this better for us, go for it. So there's something very freeing about being in this environment. They had done a two-hour live training for on sanctions with senior staff in high-risk areas. They brought outside counseling, and the first 22 slides were all about the laws and I was like, guys, nobody really wants to know that. And we fix it. And so I did. But getting that response, that doesn't come often. This is the fourth major position I've had in compliance. And no one in the past has ever said to me, so just go fix it. Yeah. Not since that first attorney way back when. And so there's something very freeing about it. And it allows me to be creative. It allows me to be innovative. I brought in, can I mention a firm name? Sure. All right, so I brought Rethink Compliance in the first six months I was there. And with their assistance, we did a compliance program assessment virtually. Yep, it's great. Um, complete with full interviews and examining all the documents. And, and But we phrased it a little differently. Instead of just doing it as an assessment, we did it as a SWOT analysis. So looking to see where the strengths were, the weaknesses, the opportunities, and opposed to the threats, places where our controls could be tight. And it went over amazingly well with the volunteers and leaders because it was a concept they understood. SWAT was familiar to the business. They use it in other areas. And it just, it, I think it helped me get in front of the right people and heard by the right audiences because I was speaking their language. Yeah. So we did the first year, we took five or six recommendations out of that, and I put them before the audit committee, and they were on board, and we went ahead and we implemented. And then the next year, we took five or six more and put them before the audit committee. Now, mind you, it's a new audit committee every year, and they were on board with it. And so now I walk in, they say, all right, what have you got on tap? They want to know what's coming next, what's new. Well, that's fantastic. And I think, I think what you're saying about speaking the language, I talk about this actually a lot, I think. The language that people speak isn't just what you think is English, Spanish, or something else, but what's familiar to them, and what you know is the company language. What, how do you speak? And I often work with internal employee communications or other people. I know I'm pretty good about getting rid of things like a lot of description. I always say nobody really cares about the history of the FCPA mm -hmm. except for people who wrote it. And exactly. it be <laughs> but with that said. I also am saying I still write like a lawyer sometimes. I'm trying not to make it better and then give it back to me so I can make sure you didn't cut anything out that we really needed. Yeah, exactly. I think it's really important. Knowing that for me is going to be the weakness because I'm going to automatically default to thorough. 
Uh, and another challenge I had too is the volunteers that I work with are some of the most highly educated people in the world. They only have one postgraduate degree. That's unusual. They usually have multiple. Yeah. Uh, so these are some of the biggest scientists and, and technical engineers in the world and the things they've created. And so when compliance comes up, it's not something that's on their radar. They don't understand it. And the compliance terms mean nothing to them. They don't exist in their world. So when I first started the job, what I would hear from some of the leaders in the other groups, the volunteers will never go for that. And sometimes volunteers would object to some of the things I was attempting to do. And I'd have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them and remembering who my audience was and putting yeah. in terms they would understand. It was easy to help them understand why it was important to what they were trying to do. Yeah. And I's mission is it's at the heart of everything we do. The volunteers and the staff, I say, they bleed I triple blue because that mission is everything. And so when I can explain to someone how a compliance violation would jeopardize that, then they jump right on board, right on board because that's all they just want to be able to do what they want to do. That's awesome. And that's super empowering. That's a really, I don't think that's something we all hope we see more. I can say most of the people I've worked with are very much concerned about making ethical decisions and doing the right thing. But I think it's different sometimes when you're in a for-profit organization because you're still looking at different parts of the bottom line than just the mission to some degree. Although in education, admittedly, it's got a little bit of a people still are trying to make people education for the future, life to a lifetime of learning. So I think that must just be a really empowering way to go to work. It's one of the things I will say, there are days, no, don't get me wrong. You said unicorns and rainbows earlier. Yeah. There are days it very definitely is not, like February of this year when the Russian sanctions hit. Yeah. It, you still want to go to work because you still feel like what you're doing is making a difference. Not just in my own organization, it's making a dis difference to the world because the people that I'm supporting are changing things in the world for the better. And so I think having a mission like that is just incredible. And I think that's what makes... What I'm doing there, less arduous than it is in most companies. I mean, I don't want to say that other companies don't want to do compliance, but they don't want to do anything that's going to impact the bottom line. And many people see compliance that way. It's the rare senior executive who looks at compliance as a competitive edge or as a value add. And so the fact that the my, my goal is helping them achieve their mission and their goal is achieving their mission. So we're on the same page. Yeah. That's awesome, which brings uh, something I wanted to circle back to. You mentioned it at, begin at the beginning and about your day one and even with learning sanctions is imposter syndrome, which we've talked about before. When you and I spoke and when we've talked, it makes me think about how do we change ourselves and our feeling of imposter syndrome to this opportunity mindset? I think men won't even, they still, they're less likely than women to sometimes have the imposter syndrome and they're like, I'll just jump in there and see what happens. How do we change our thinking and feeling of being imposters? And I've had it. Everyone has. This is the chance for me to learn and build my career. And I've been entrusted to do this. Yeah. And I don't know if you've, if you've ever seen that speak on it, but I did a thing with Lisa Beth Lantini where we talked about a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. Yeah. And so people who think they've learned all they can learn are those people in that fixed mindset. And they're the ones I think most likely to suffer from imposter syndrome. If you are thirsty to 
and open to learning. That's the other thing. You have to really be open to learning new things, to trying new things. And I always equate it to technology. Somebody says to me, oh, I've got this application and it's great. And I say, well, give it to me. You don't know how to use it. Yeah, so what? I'll figure it out. Give it to me. And so that's my approach to whether it's trying a new recipe or, or creating a new program. Like, what's the worst that could happen? Yeah. Now, I'm not going to break anything beyond repair. I'm either going to do really good at it or I'm not. And I'll learn from it and I'll try it a different way. And that's, it's not easy to get there. I have not always had that attitude. Yeah, I haven't either. I, I used to have more fear. I don't know if it's age or experience or sort of oftentimes realizing that some of the people around you don't really have it as together as they make the good show of it. And they, you know what you're doing. It's building confidence. I think the other thing that is important and helps people is the fear that, that you're able to make mistakes. And I think that's one thing that people companies and managers have gotten better on. I've talked about before to give people the, you know, I've had a Someone in the past talked about, you have to give people the ability to fail. Exactly. So can, I always think about it as you can give people the, the you know space to make mistakes, but don't give them the space to make catastrophic mistakes because mm-hmm. you also have to rein that in a little bit for the protection of the organization and of an individual. But I think being able to just try things and say, what's yeah. the worst that can happen? And when good things happen, it, it helps. That's it. And it's very much it's the manager you have. It's the environment you work in. I'm, my father used to phrase it a little bit differently. He used to say, you give people enough rope that they can do stuff, but not enough rope to hang themselves. I like that. Uh, <laughs> and that's like really, that's what it's all about. And I know I've been lucky to have managers like that throughout, you know, throughout my career. I wouldn't say con- continuously throughout my career, but throughout my career, I've encountered people like that. And I learned from, they would literally, from that first attorney who said to me, go fix it. I didn't know anything about record management. I don't, I was a litigation paralegal. That's what I knew. But he said to me, go fix it. And so I learned from him and I learned from others. And I hope now my staff, the same way, have three big technology projects going on in the past year. And I have compliance paralegal who came, who worked for me previously and then came back to work for me at I. And I said to her, well, this is your baby. You take it, you run with it, and let me know when you need my input. And so she'd be in my office every so often, a hair on fire. They want me to build out UAT testing. I don't know what that is. I said, well, go ask someone. And so we went through the whole year like that. And now we're getting ready to go live. I've got this confident person standing in front of me saying, we're good. Testing's done. I think we're ready to roll. And and that old, and she had her moments during the year where she thought she couldn't do it. And so I hope to be able to do it for the people around me as well. And I think what you said earlier, too, a lot of it is experience and age because we, you and I have both had failures in our career and we survived. Yeah. We and so failure is not ter- terrible. No. It's just part of life. And I think that's where you begin to overcome some of that is when you realize that it's just, it's part of life. It is. And you said something just a minute ago, which seems like a perfect way to close out and also to to reflect back to Mary, because what you're talking about is one of the things that I think is what we've often said about the podcast. And you have sent the elevator back down and people have helped that with you. So I want to say, this is the way I'm ending my my quick year. And we'll be back next year. But to end it with that, thank you for sending the elevator back down and helping people to move up and 
with that, thank you. Lisa, thank you for everything you and Mary do. I think I've said this to you before. You guys are my mentor in the car. Everywhere I go, the podcast is on, whispering in my ear. And I think, and you've got a lot of listeners I know that are young in their career and they need that kind of support and guidance. And you guys set a great example for us, both in what you do and who you do it with. So we thank you. Thank you. That's just such a compliment. We are so lucky to get to talk to the people. This is People talk to me about, I'll just say about CLE and learning and other things. I said, I get to learn by talking to people that I can on a podcast. It's a really great experience. I, I refer to things I learn from people all the time. And so we thank you for that. And on behalf of the Compliance Podcast Network, hope everybody is enjoying a December season and have a good one. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jackie. Happy New Year, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.